this second of three podcasts, NEC dance producer Kathy Levy continues her conversation with acclaimed choreographer Edward Locke. When I think about some of the early works and some of the, you know, you were often referred to as, you know, work that was almost Eurocrash and, and very, very aggressive and, and yet humane. I never got that aggression thing. I know. It's, I mean, it, it wasn't... I think it must have come out of the sense of... No, it came out of the music. Well, that and <laughs> bodies, bodies slamming against yeah, each other in yeah. height. Yeah. I mean, there was you know the, the barrel turn and the and the and the ability for the lifting and and the the just yeah the the bodies being whirled and twirled. Well, they weren't after being whirled. They were they weren't being whirled. They were whirled by their owner. Yeah. <laughs> they were deciding to do certain things. I mean, I think well, the you were ostensibly giving them those things to do to. No, but I mean, if you looked if you looked at traditional art forms or at least ballet, for instance, the double tour en l'air was vertical. Everything was vertical. Nothing was horizontal. And when you saw something lean in the air, um, there's a there's a collision that happens because we live in a very vertical world. Everything is upright. You know, upright is a positive statement. Straight is a positive statement. Everything is sort of like um, seen as dependable if it's um, you know uh, standing up and and early riser and yeah. way to go to work yeah. and all the rest of it and the leaning and the falling is an abandon which in some way is not well looked upon by society and the idea of having these moments on stage was made even more powerful because stage is believable you can see these things on film but they're amplified they're it's a third take it's there's part of your mind that's going well They've really gotten rid of everything that didn't work or wasn't coherent with that, and we're left with whatever did work. Whereas on stage, you have to believe it because it's the same room. You're in the same room. So this um, falling and, as you said, the collision with the floor and so on and so forth, I mean, the rational mind would indicate that on a two-year tour, if really this was a damaging concept, people would not have been able to do the two years. Uh, never mind the 17 years I worked with Louise. <laughs> so uh, I think the emotional um, um, shock was what was perceived as violent. The sense of it not fitting in what was supposedly a rational, upright world. The second thing that made it like that was the music. I worked with composers who I never told what to do. They essentially chose everything, including the loudness. And a lot of these uh, pieces were very loud. And I remember people coming into the, to the studio to watch the same piece being rehearsed and leaving with a very different point of view than they had when they went to the theater because it was in silence and there, was, there wasn't this sort of assaultive thing. <clears throat> and when I noticed it the most was when there was this Russian um, presence in Montreal or in Quebec City, I'm not sure, for the hockey something or other, and there was an arts festival, uh, and we were put, for some strange reason, back-to-back -back with the uh, Bolshoi uh, for a pas de deux from Kachaturian. And we then followed them. And when I heard the music, I went, well, this could be interesting. Why don't you just rewind whatever you're doing, and then we go back on stage right after, after the dancers, and we do essentially an excerpt of human sex, but on the score from Kachaturian. 
and the Russian translator was game, so he did it. So they danced their pas de deux, and then he rewound the tape, and we went on their music doing our dance. And everybody came to me after and said, well, that's much better. You're <laughs> it's a much sweeter, and a much more lyrical approach. There's a tenderness to the work. Everything is, you know, a, a, this is an interesting direction you're taking. Nothing had changed. This was just a switch of music. But the music had a very big influence on how people saw the movement. Do you start each piece with a very clear idea? I try not to. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the work at the, the later stage before you started into more classically, classically based work. Like things like uh, Enfant and Two mm -hmm. and, and um, Salt. I mean, some of those have very strong images, very strong filmic images. Are each of them trying to say something different about something that is intriguing you about more than human relations, but about things that are going on in the world or people that you're meeting? I mean, can you, can you talk about some of those pieces? Because it's a really big, bulky period of your creativity and that work toured for a very, very long time. I'm talking sort of into the 90s into the early part of uh, this decade. Did you start those, each of those pieces? I'm thinking about some of the bigger works that are now touring big opera stages. And I, I'm, I hope I'm right in my titles, like Salt and Two and, and even Enfant, which came earlier. What, was I thinking in terms of what, size? What were your, no, what, was the, what were these pieces about thematically? I'm, I'm thinking of images of the, of the old lady on the film with Louise playing those different images and the, and the, very, the dogs and the armor. And I'm probably getting a lot of my pieces mixed up. You know them obviously Well, I mean, it depended on the piece. Um, obviously, there's a narrative that you want to present but you don't want to present it so that it means absolutely the same thing to each person attending the performance. Um, That's a very tricky uh, challenge. Well, it actually isn't. Uh, I think that um, when you're dealing with movement, you already are dealing with a theme that is open to various interpretation. Uh, you know, movement and, and language are similar, though they seem not to be on, on the outside. Movement um, is similar to language in terms of its structure. What makes a language beautiful or interesting isn't the meaning of the word, it's the very sound, shapes, structures, and various other cons constructs that put together a language. And choreography, in that same way, has a set of dynamics and rhythms and constructions that make it palatable or interesting or evocative to a viewer without necessarily knowing what it means. Meaning is an overstated commodity because frankly without knowing what your own life means you've got no foundation upon which to establish the understanding of meaning of anything so we have words that give us a sense of meaning we have for instance a word for the universe how silly is that this infinite ever-changing until the unknowable massive thing can fit in a word and we get a sense of somehow understanding it when of course we have no clue. Uh, so I think the idea that art is there to pass on a theme is less important than to initiate a response, to um, create a sense of, how should I put it, to, to create a situation where the audience will sense that it understands less than it thinks. Because by understanding less you are open to seeing more. And if you're dealing with a lack of understanding relative to the body, then you're opening your um, 
you're opening yourself to your physical being in the way you did when you were a child, when you didn't know so much, and when information was going in rather than being generated out. At some point in our lives, the flow starts to go the other way. We tend to become responsible, you know, parts of society, and we tend to want to show others how well we understand ourselves and our environment, whereas as children, we have no shame <laughs> about trying to receive information and better understand what we have. So, the theater sometimes can reverse that flow, because if it makes you doubt some part of yourself looking at the theater production or the dance production, then that doubt will in some ways affect the whole construction on which it's based. And physical understanding, the understanding of our bodies, is one of the earliest understandings we have upon which we've built a lot of other layers of understanding. So if we shake the foundation up a little bit, a lot of other things get shaken around, which is, um, which is nice. So I'm not sure if, uh, yes, of course I have themes. Of course I know what those themes are, but what I don't feel is necessary is for me to hammer those themes to an audience so that their interpretation is exactly the same as mine. I think that I disagree less with, uh, more with. So you, you, you make a piece like um, thinking of New Demons, for example, okay, sure. all right, and you tour it for, what, two years, two and a half years by this point? Um, probably around two probably. years. So are you already thinking about, ah, my next piece, I want to do this, or my next piece, these themes are important to me, or, can, you know what I'm saying? Like, for what's the starting point? Because the pieces well, seem to get bigger and more Rejection is the starting point. Rejection? Sure. Uh, it's the propulsion that initiates... Rejection of what? ...of what you're doing. Rejection of seeing the Wherever. piece too many times after no, so many rejection years? rejection at some point of what you happen to have endorsed... Um, prior. Prior, yeah. Huh. I mean, the, the, the propulsion comes from the rejection. You can't love what you do so much that you do not want to some, in some way escape it. And so at some point you fall out of love with various elements that you were fascinated by and you reject them. And by rejecting them you propulse yourself away from that direction into another one. Um, will it ever stop? I, no, of course it won't. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> but, I mean, you cannot, you cannot intelligently say that you've ever going to find something that you'll be satisfied with. I, when, I can't see that's possible. But when you look back at that body of work uh, through this time period that we're talking about with Louise and, and uh, you know, the work before what I see as being somewhat of a turn to a, a different direction around the body, do you have... Um, what pieces come to mind? And, and do, you, do you have a piece that is, for you, absolutely a favorite or... Or the opposite? A favorite. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, try I'm going back to your thing about rejection and propulsion. Obviously, each of these pieces had a very long well, lives. Well, some, some of these were, were, were evolutionary and some of them were revolutionary. Some really departed completely. For instance, when we went from, from not point to point, that was an extreme kind of movement whereas uh, others were sort of evolutionary. They changed certain elements, but there was a recognizable um, style. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, the core of some of the most extreme stuff we did was in human sex. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was that sense of an absolutely raw, in-your-face, um, 
uh, feel to that from from my memories of it. Yeah. Um, so that would be certainly a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others. I mean, you know, New Demons was was a favorite of mine. Oddly enough, sometimes for the music, there was such a strange collision of uh, uh, Hindu rock and, yeah. <laughs> and the movement that we were doing. Um, but. You know, this f- the favorites um, sort of get all mixed up at some point in my head. Um, after 36 years of it, it, it just, I don't know. Okay, well, before we go to the point work, because I do see that, as I said, mm-hmm. as a, some, somewhat of a turn, um, at least. It wasn't, it wasn't. You know, oddly enough, in 1985, when I did Human Sex, Rudy Van Danzig came to see it when we were touring Holland. And based on what he saw, he asked me to come in and do a piece for the Dutch National. And obviously, That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So there oh, you go. <laughs> well, well, I mean, he he saw a balletic element in human sex, even though human sex was supposedly anti-ballet, which I never claimed it was. There were arabesques, there were beats, there were various elements of. Um, there was a tutu, if I remember correctly. There was a tutu, um, but yet people felt it was about as far from ballet as it could possibly be. He didn't feel that way, uh, and he felt that there was an element that he thought could be interesting explored in a more traditional context. So that became your first piece for the company? For the... For Dutch National? Yeah. And... and Not even sex, uh, bread no, dances. No, no, I know, but bread dances. And that was in the late 80s. Yeah, it was right during the touring phase of human sex. And what was that experience? Was that the first time you'd gone into a big company like that? I mean, since the early days of... Well, I, I began prior to starting the company in 1980. The first connection to a ballet company was with the Grand Ballet. With the Grand Ballet, right. But certainly in a studio situation, not in, a, not in the context of a, of a theater, yeah. So what do you remember about that time? Um, there was a lady called Anna Seidel, who I came to call Sui. <laughs> 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 she was she a was very um, extreme person. Um, and I remember her because she had this real problem with the idea that I was asking her to go fast. She had, tr- she had wonderful lines and extensions, and, and she was a young German girl, and um, she just didn't want to sort of let go of that uh, lyricism she'd been working on all of her life. And then I remember that day when it kind of veered around, That's, and, and I realized that it's a, v- it's a very intensely human art form. You cannot will a person to do something. Uh, they have to evaluate what you're offering and they have to decide whether they're going to take it or whether they're not. And that happened with her and it happened in a very marked way. And so I just remember that as one of the things that sort of struck me in that process. But it was great. Did it sort of turn overnight? It was great. It was, it's a, it was a very friendly company. It was a very, very uh, open company. They had a tradition, especially in Holland, of taking risks, of going and trying new directions. The, the ballet world there was not the same as elsewhere. And the, the Dutch National had a history of uh, very, you know, extreme aesthetics and trying they new still work. Do, and they still yeah. do. Uh, but it was there that when I went. So there was no culture shock. There was no sense of, ooh, what's this guy going to do? Um, it was more an intrigue. You know, was he, was, what, what was he going to bring to the table and what kind of ways he was going to express? I'll tell you how extreme it got. I mean, I was um, in, the, in the theater um, <clears throat> just prior to the official opening, 
<laughs> the dancers were in the wings, sort of getting ready to, you know, have the ballet happen. And the musicians, because it was with orchestra, uh, were, were practicing. And Rudy Van Danzig sat down next to me and he looked at all of this and he went, that's fascinating, you've staged the entire production in the wings, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was hard, it was hard to make them, <laughs> it was hard to make any kind of an extreme statement with these guys, they were ready for anything. Yeah, uh, they were just open <laughs> Did you do a second piece with that company? Nope. No, so that was the one. They, they, they kept on the rep I for know, more than one season, but I didn't yeah, come yeah, back, no. Yeah. I, I guess the, the, the difference would be that, you know, I, maybe because you're, you're, you've been in Montreal and you've got an obvious connection to Les Grands Ballets, I think this was probably, it's fair to say, the first international commission. I was, yeah. yeah. And, was. and there have been others since then, and other yeah. collaborations since then, kind of as a parallel line always to La La La. So it must have been, in, in some ways, uh, a bit of a forerunner of the work that you started to do five, six years ago. But at that time, um, just by nature of the, the, the point work, well, a I mean, very it was, big it was a strange forerunner because it was on Tchaikovsky's Concerto for Violin in D major, right. and Amjad was based entirely on deconstruction of Tchaikovsky. Right. Um, right. But I, I saw that, in a way, classical ballet put to a non traditional use. Uh, in the context of a traditional piece of music, had this kind of pull and give that sort of ripped things a little bit, but they also created interesting moments because people would remember certain things and yet not remember others. The music carried with it a strong memory and the dance would fight that memory and the give and take and pull of it was interesting theater. But it would still be a long time before that approach to technique in the body would start to be a signature, a new signature for La La La, I think. Well, again, it's kind of, it I'm Amelia, not sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at why Rudy Mendancic actually invited the company, is because he did see a cultural, or rather classical structure, kind of hidden, but there. Mm -hmm. And s filmmakers would also do that, because when you looked at what Bernard Hébert did in the human sex cycle, when he did that little short film with the water, with the tutus, there was an obvious um, classical connotation in that structure that because of the camera and because of the cleanliness of the environment was perhaps more evident than it would in the kind of clangy pipe hitting pipe kind of extreme presentation that the piece itself was. So maybe this essence of classical ballet has always been in the wings of La La La. Well, I mean, if you look back in 1980, permeates. one of the founding members was a classical dancer, yeah. was Miriam Moutier. Yeah. Uh, so it was never, I mean, uh, it was never, we never believed in the actual message of the ballet, but some of that technique was there from the start. But it, it also has meant I guess fundamentally that you need a different kind of dancer since uh, Amelia was the first piece. Is I'm that correct? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think that's been a popular conception that we need a different type of dancer. That the dancers that we work with are in some some way, shape, or form fundamentally different. But it's been disproven so many times because the training that people that join the company have technically are pretty much the same training as they would in any classical ballet companies. And when I go visit classical ballet companies, I really don't try to not do what I normally do. Uh, and they actually have a lot of fun with it. So I think it's more the message, an unusual message in the context of dance. And therefore, because a message, message is unusual, people assume the messenger must also be unusual. 
but it is simply a role. And like any actor taking on a role, it doesn't necessarily mean the actor as a person has to be different in order to take on that role. But t- tell me about when you first began introducing a lot of point work into the La 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 productions. In 1997. With? Uh, salt. With Salt. And that piece was a combination, if you will, of artists on point and artists not on point. Actually, Louise was the only person that was not on point, amongst the women. Right. And that was, did that feel like a a very obvious next step for you, or very, uh, I mean, I, well, I, I I, I can hear you saying that it was always part of your aesthetic approach in terms of the structure of a classical ballet and the structure of what you were doing, but... I think it's fair to say that we look at point work as being something other than what we might have associated with you before that time. Well, like point work is essentially uh, wearing a point shoe. Yes, but I can't put on a pair of point shoes and be in your piece. I agree. I mean, unless you really want me to, but that uh, would be another story. I agree. Um, let me refine that. The <laughs> arch of the foot permitting the point shoe to do what it normally traditionally does, which is to carry the weight of the body on the front of the foot. Um, but given that, that's about the only thing that point work actually signifies. It doesn't carry with it any um, agreement or aesthetic or narrative or history other than that one fact. And it's not even gender-specific because we made that happen for men in the last two pieces, Amjad and Amelia before that. So um, it, it's actually very neutral. Um, it's just what it does or tends to do is it creates a situation where for someone that likes a lot of detail, it clarifies certain things so that you can better hide them. Uh, you create a situation where you have essentially uh, a defined leg which you then try to hide with a large amount of little details that kind of flutter all over it. So you see it and you lose it. Um, And that's really the interest I have in it. That's the interest you have in point work? Hmm. Yep. I guess I would say that as a watcher of dance, it fundamentally is a different, um, it comes with a different uh, assumption about training and orientation of that dancer that not everybody could, I mean, if I think about the dancers who were dancing in your pieces in the 80s, I don't imagine, age aside, I don't imagine those artists necessarily being the kind of artists that you would have brought in to do Amelia or Amjad. Uh, um, uh, Miriam could have. Uh, uh, but because her training was in classical ballet. Sure. Right. And, and so would have uh, a few others that were in the first productions mm-hmm. of the company because there was an influx of, let's say, about 20, maybe 30% of the dancers that had classical technique during the time when uh, we were doing these productions. Mm-hmm. They were not being used with point work, but they could have easily put on points. Is classical technique still sort of a fundamental of training for most companies, for most dancers? Well, I don't know. Of course not. But I think uh, what happened was that there was an anti-technique uh, movement uh, which created a, a funny situation because, of course, any movement will reverse itself. 
and then reverse itself again, and then reverse itself again. It's, it's not like it ever comes to a stop. It's essentially a pendulum. So uh, there was a need to get away from the over-stylized and sort of um, too uh, theatrical uh, way of expressing yourself through the more traditional art forms. And so there was a, a rejection of it. But then once a rejection occurred, there needed, of course, to be a rejection of the rejection. And the, uh, what happened was that some, not all, but some of the technique um, was essentially not lost, but migrated into the classical world. And when the contemporary choreographers decided that they wanted to have access to that technique, they went towards the, the classical world to get it. So it was an odd sort of funny mix. Um, but it, it did encourage a crosstalk between classical ballet and contemporary dance that probably wouldn't have occurred as easily or as quickly had that not occurred. Because right now, it just is so easy to find mm, contemporary choreographers heading classical ballet companies and classical dancers migrating to contemporary companies. Uh, the two are having conversations that didn't used to be the norm when I started. That's true. I remember sort of in the late 80s, the New York City Ballet bringing Carol Armitage in to do a piece sure. for them, which was sure. you know, an amazing, uh, amazing coup at the time. But now sure. it's, uh, now it's more, more obvious. That's true. Sure. That's all for this edition of NAC Dance Podcast. Join us next time for part three of the conversation with Edward Locke. Please send us your comments and questions. You can email us at necpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NEC podcasts by visiting necpodcasts.ca. There you will find past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, this is Larry Evans saying goodbye from Canada's NAC Dance. <laughs>